Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Joining me on the phone, Dane Chamorro, partner in Control Risks, a 25-year veteran of looking at this topic uh, and uh, experience in the region. Dane, welcome uh, this morning. Glad to have you on Weekend Mornings. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Dane, this topic is huge. Uh, and when, we, when you think about risk and when you talk about it with your clients uh, under this current COVID-19 environment that we're in, what, what are the first kind of things that come to mind or the questions that come up uh, from, from your clients when you talk to them? Yeah, so I think that the first thing is that uh, this is not a black swan, although it's continuously described that way, particularly in the media. If you think about just the history of pandemics in the last decade uh, or things that approached pandemic, they were one after the other kind of starting starting with SARS, right? Um, and sometimes they were global and sometimes they were less global. But this has been happening with a fair degree of regularity, and that's before you add in things like Fukushima and and uh, trade wars and things like that. So the idea is that you have to be prepared for shocks to the business environment. They actually happen with a great degree of regularity. And you have to think also about what uh, it looks like moving from kind of best practice crisis management to recovery. And that's what we're helping with a lot of our clients with now is what does recovery look like, particularly in Asia, because Asia is obviously the first region of the world that is going to emerge from this. Yeah, your your point is well well noted. I think on on it not necessarily being a, a black swan event, but you know each of these events is quite different. I mean, Fukushima, the response to Fukushima by businesses across the region is quite different from that of entire economies shutting down. So while while we do expect these shocks to happen, how, how can there be a standardized response uh, from from businesses uh, that that you know might be handling these? Uh, these very different events in different ways. Yeah, so we, we call this uh, that you know this, this ability to respond and recover. It's a bit like muscle memory. <clears throat> um, if you don't exercise it, you you kind of get flabby, right, as a business. And if you practice it, and it can be practiced, um, you get better at it. And it will never be the. You're absolutely right. The event that you that you kind of um, tabletop or plan for will never be the one that happens, but it's the process of preparing for it that makes you much better at responding when, it, when something does occur. And the companies that respond better perform better financially, their stocks perform better, they recover more quickly, they actually get a leg up on their competition. Um, and so that's what we, we advocate is that practice, practice, practice. And yes, it won't be the one that you practiced last year or, or the year before, but in, to a certain extent, that doesn't matter because you're, you're instilling good and you're practicing good behaviors for the entity, for the organization as a whole. And that's the most important part. Of course, your clients are on the right side of that muscle memory practice. They, after all, they, that's something they discuss with you. But when you look at businesses broadly, let's say just across Singapore, and I know you have uh, great regional expertise, but what percentage of businesses do you think are actually actively practicing these things year in and year out uh, versus the ones that are really and truly caught off guard? So most public businesses or virtually all public businesses will need to do that once a year. 
Um, some of the smaller ones, the non-public ones, may not. I think it's not so much which ones are doing it, which ones aren't. It, which, it's which ones are doing it kind of realistically. Mm. And and quite often this falls into the category of, oh, okay, it's something we have to do. Um, so we'll go through something very simple for a couple of hours and we take the board through it and then we're done. And it actually has to be much more, as I think this this crisis has pointed out, you actually really have to challenge yourself. And if you, and we have this all the time, people say, oh, that could never happen. You know, and Fukushima actually is a good example of that. You have a country that's very well prepared for earthquakes, uh, a country that's very well prepared for tsunamis. And they had both of those, and then followed, obviously, by the nuclear disaster. Now, if we had done that scenario for somebody before that happened, people would have said, oh, that's fantasy. It will never happen. Pandemic is another good example of that. Can you imagine shutting down most of the world's economies, most of the world's travel, et cetera, et cetera? Everybody would have said, no, never happen, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to really envision the worst-case scenario Sometimes and then multiply and plan, it and plan for that, <laughs> and then multiply it by a factor of X. Huh? And multiply it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when when we talk about uh, you know one of the biggest threats that is that has come uh, to fruition has been the the closing down of supply chains across the planet, basically, uh, and started, of course, you know, in Wuhan with and China with the massive uh, production capability stopping, and then and then it tailed on from there across the world. Uh, when you look at that, what is the way forward for businesses that in this part of the world that rely so much on on trade and shipping uh, to diversify those supply chains? What will be the way forward through the rest of this crisis and then beyond? I'm glad you asked. So supply chains is, is it's kind of that it's obviously more important in some sectors than others, automotive electronics, but it's something that was being challenged before because of the U.S.-China trade conflict and then got almost a death blow from, from this current crisis. So what we've been saying is that diversification and localization, regionalization, this is the new black for supply chains. With a couple of exceptions, a couple of sectoral exceptions, like the automotive industry, which is very heavily focused on Wuhan in China, uh, and some spaces in the electronics industry, uh, you will not have global supply chains in the way you've had them before. So if you're a, a U.S. manufacturer, you're going to look very hard at regionalizing what you can, uh, particularly in places if you've been using China or Thailand, like in places like Mexico. So I think Mexico, in the medium to longer term, will do very well with this. If you're a European manufacturer, you're going to look at Poland and Romania and places like that. And I think in the medium to long term, they will do very well. And it's not to say that the regions will be cut off from each other. They won't be. But you see it already happening in, in Asia as a result of higher costs in China and other things. Chinese businesses, Chinese the Chinese supply chain moving into places like Vietnam. That's been happening for a while. And Vietnam has done well out of that. So you're going to have regionalization will be the, the new future of supply chains, localization, regionalization, diversification. That's how you, you're going to go uh, as a business going forward. Talking with Dane Chamorro, a partner at Control Risks. And Dane, when you talk about that supply chain, something that you had mentioned to me, uh, an adage, you know, it takes a th thousands of parts to make a car and only one part to stop it uh, from being made. And, and you know, the, the supply chain is, is very complex in, in many um, in, in many manufacturing processes, right? There are, there are sub-suppliers and things yeah. like that. H how does a company that is involved in any kind of manufacturing um, hedge against 
the, the second and third tier or lower suppliers in their supply chain. Is that possible? It is. And again, part of that is uh, the first step is, you know, as the Old Testament says, and all by getting first get understanding, right? You really first have to understand down to the nth degree your supply chain. And I think, and understand the resilience that is there or not. And I think a lot of companies have misled themselves into believing that they understood their supply chain well. And in fact, when you get down to that second, third, fourth tier level, uh, realizing that, oh, they either didn't understand it because there was a critical part that came from a factory in JB or in Wuhan, and that stops the whole process, or that those suppliers weren't as resilient as they thought they were, or that the local governments weren't as good at managing crises. And this is something we've done for our clients, is assessing the capacity of local governments to actually manage crises. You've seen this in spades in you know, a place like the United States, which is big and has a huge variety of effective response. You also have it in China, which is a centralized state. But from locality to locality, you will have some that manage crises better. And you yeah. want to be in one of those places where crises is managed better because they will happen again. Dane, when, when you look at companies that aren't necessarily uh, in a manufacturing mode that, that the supply chains would, would be important, you know, many, many businesses will be looking toward what the next move governments will make when we think of tariffs or we think of uh, opening borders to, to trade in different ways, uh, whether it's the services industry or whatever. Do you think that COVID-19 presents uh, a moment that, that governments will rise to and realize that, hey, we need to not lock down our economies, but to open up and to have more partners and, and more fluidity and flexibility? Because let's be honest, in the past two, three years, we've seen it go the other direction. Yes. And I think this will actually exacerbate, as we, as we say, this crisis actually exacerbates a lot of things or accelerates a lot of things that were already happening. And maybe I'm a bit too pessimistic, but I see it actually going to the other way to what you just described. So we've had uh, a good 40 years, uh, 30 to 40 years of increasingly open borders, increasingly open capital flows. And I think that has come to an end. And it's been happening slowly, but I think this will accelerate it. And I think you see that in Europe, and I think you see it uh, across, I mean, obviously you see it with the U.S. and China. You're going to have greater scrutiny on investments. You're going to have greater scrutiny on supply chains, certainly in the national security, anything that's related to national security space. I think that is the new normal. Hmm. Do, do, is that not sort of antithetical to what you were just saying, though, about supply chain diversification? Uh, because they'll, they'll need to diversify, but yet, you know, con- countries to, will be more inward looking. They'll need to, yeah, they'll need to diversify, but they're going to diversify within a region. So if you, if you think of yourself as a German manufacturer, would you rather be relying on that part coming from China or Thailand, or would you rather rely on it coming from Poland, where you can truck it across the border? similarly for a U.S. manufacturer and Mexico. So, yes, it's diversification, but it's going to be diversification with a difference, and that differ- that difference will be, it will be close to home. Yeah. What are the one or two or three steps that, that companies should be taking right now to future plan to, to think about their risk in the next 18 months, 24 months? What should they be, what are the questions they should be asking themselves? So they should be, certainly they should be, and they probably already are, I think, you know, really examining their supply chains down to a very granular level and thinking about where else can they source the pieces that can be sourced elsewhere. 
um, understanding that it's very difficult to leave the scale of China um, because there's no country that can really replicate that scale. They need to be thinking about how reg the regulatory environment will change, both at home but also in places where they may source. Um, and they need to be thinking about governance, which is one of kind of my pet topics. Uh, and governance, as one of my colleagues says, you know, compliance is what you must do by law or regulation. Governance is what you ought to do. Mm. And that's a very tricky thing because it varies depending on who you're asking and where you're sitting and what country you're based in and time. Frankly, it varies from month to month almost. But you really need to be out in front thinking about, and we've, we've helped some clients with this, if I move out of China and I go to Thailand and Vietnam and Philippines from a governance perspective to manufacture things, what does that look like? Because it is very different than what China looks like. So how do I do that? And given the intense media and, and, and social media scrutiny of what companies are doing, particularly in a crisis, this is going to be a, a huge area that, that needs focus. And what would professional services consider going forward? I'm sorry, can you say that again? Professional services? Yeah, professional services versus manufacturing-type uh, organizations. So a lot of it is the same. Obviously, you don't have the same supply chain issues. I guess the, repli the, the equivalent in professional services is, is talent. So is, you know, is talent going to be as freely mobile as it has been? You just look at the EU, for example. You look at what the U.S. has done with bringing in people from other parts of the world. Is that talent going to be freely available? Because those models typically rely on the, the generally free ability of human talent. So that's one thing. The governance thing is, you know, just as, perhaps even more so for them, uh, for professional services firms. Do we take on that client? And we've seen you know, a couple of international companies in the last few years get caught out by clients they have accepted. Hmm. And that means consulting, banking, banking, financial services, insurance, legal firms, right? They've, they've taken on an account, a client, and maybe there was, a, there was an incentive there from a financial perspective, but they really didn't scratch deep enough below the surface to understand what that that client was involved in, and later it blows up in their face. Hmm. So the governance thing, I would say, for professional services firms is probably, it's a bit harder in some ways, but it's just as crucial, maybe more crucial than it is for, uh, say, manufacturing companies. Well, great insight. Dane Chamorro, partner at Control Risks, thanks so much for being with us today and, and talking to us about the risk environment. Thanks, Glenn. Good to be here. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.